0: Well, you just heard me talk about a story found in the Bible. And that's the story I want to look at for us this morning. It's uh, the story of Naaman. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me. And we're going to take a... a, We're going to take... Go ahead and take the, the time to read through this, because you need to get a sense of who the different characters are in this story. We're going to look a little bit at each of the characters' lives and each of their responses and how they uh, how they interacted with one another. Um, so let's go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to be reading pretty much the entire chapter. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Oh, I would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Israel said, well, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and they said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down. And dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company. And he came, and he stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So now, uh, excuse me, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, and this is Elisha saying, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged Elisha to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, uh, See, my master has spared... This Naaman, the Syrian, and is not, is not accepting from him his hand, what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will get something from him. And so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. And he said, is all well? And Gehazi said, all is well? My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets, Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when Gehazi came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. It's a really interesting story. And and if you take the time to study it, there's some nuance there that you don't get by reading it, but if you can study it, you learn. Number one, leprosy, as I told in the children's thing, leprosy was cancer for all intents and purposes. I mean it was a decaying of the physical body. Um, we don't know exactly whether it was leprosy or some other thing, but it was something that was considered completely unclean. And in, 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 uh, according to Levitical law, the, the the person suffering from leprosy had to be totally separated from their community. They had to announce if they were in public, I am unclean and stay away from me. So they're basically ostracized. They are separated from the rest of the community. Now, In the Syrian culture, apparently that wasn't the case because here we have this commander of the Syrian army who comes down with leprosy and he's not ostracized by his community. He's actually kept still in his position and he's working. And it's unfortunate that he's got this disease, but it's not a not a situation where he's being ostracized. As a matter of fact, the king of Syria says, hey, well, let's do whatever we can make you get you. Well, if there's a chance, let's make this happen. And so this guy Naaman, who is held in high esteem, it says, because he effected a great victory for the king of Syria, is given um, an opportunity to get well. Now, I'm going to refer back to this great victory thing in just a second. But I want to move on, uh, first of all, to the king in Israel, the king of Syria. Here's the word of Naaman. Believes it. If there's a chance, well let's go ahead and go for it. Obviously we can't do anything for you. Maybe the Israelites, God has power that we're not aware of. And so he sends him with a lot of money and a lot of gifts. I mean it said there was, uh, the, the, the silver, if you bring it into today's uh, vernacular, that's 750 pounds of silver. If you look at the gold, it's 150 pounds of gold. Now, today's prices, I looked it up this morning, today's prices for an ounce of gold, 1500 and change. How many ounces are in a pound? 16. Multiply 16 times 1500, approximately 24 to 25,000 dollars for one pound. There were 24 pounds of gold. Ha! That's a lot of money! And the king was giving this as a gift for the chance that his dear and trusted person could be brought to full health. So this wasn't just this little thing. This was huge. This was huge. Now, look at the response of the king of Israel. So Naaman goes in and brings a letter to the king of Israel. Verse six. And when the letter is read, it says this. When this letter reaches, you know that I have sent to you naming my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king read the letter, he tears his clothes and he says, What am I, God? What am I supposed to do about this? Now, I will point you to another king in another time named Hezekiah, who got a similar letter only it was a letter of threat against him and his his nation. And it says that he went into the tabernacle and he laid the letter out before God and he said, Oh God, I don't know what to do with this. Please, God, help us. And God rescued. But this God, this guy, this king, his initial response is, what am I supposed to do with this? He's seeking some way to, to attack us. He's looking for a quarrel so that he can take us and kill us. And I was like, I don't understand that. So I did a little bit of research about this king. His name is Jehoram. His brother's name was Ahaziah. His father and mother were Ahab and Jezebel. So Ahab and Jezebel father two boys, maybe even more, but we only know of two. One is Ahaziah, apparently the older of the two, because when Ahab dies in battle, Ahaziah takes over as king. And then when Ahaziah dies, he doesn't have any children, so it falls to the next in line in the royal lineage, and that's Jehoram. So Jehoram now is over over Israel. So his, his training His spiritual training was not God worship. His spiritual training was Baal worship. And the thing that's interesting about the connection between Naaman and Jehoram, the king of Israel, is it's not in the Bible, but it is in Midrash teaching. It is in the teachings of the rabbis that... This statement in the very first part of chapter 5 where it says Naaman the commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master the king and held in high favor because by Naaman the Lord had given victory to Syria and what what the rabbis say is that if you look at the story of Ahab and his last battle and when he died it said some man shoots And kills, I mean strikes Abraham, I mean Ahab with an arrow and Ahab ends up dying. And the rabbis say that it was Naaman's arrow that killed Ahab. And then Naaman is then raised up to this position of leader of the the captain, commander of the army under the king of Syria and he actually Walks in during the time of formal worship every every quarter or year or half year whenever they do it, and he actually is there with the king, and the king is resting his hand on on the command on Naaman's arm as he goes before the altar of their god, and they bow down. So this is a, a big, high, powerful guy in the Syrian government, and the king sends thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of goods. Saying, heal this guy, it's important to me. And the king's got this attitude like, what am I supposed to do about this? And Elisha hears about it. And what does he say? Elisha says, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me and he can know that there is a prophet in Israel and that bothered me quite honestly because i would have wanted elisha to say let him know that there is a god in israel but he didn't he said let him know that there's a prophet in israel and i think i i don't think it was a it was a snub i don't think it was a uh, any anything to kind of to, to, to jab at jehoram i think what he was saying was let Naaman know that there is someone in this nation who truly trusts in and believes in the word of God. Since you don't, king. And it's not a, it wasn't being mean-spirited. He was just saying, there is still the hope of God in this nation because I trust in God and I, I have seen God work in my life. So send him to me and God can heal him. So that's what happens. So then Naaman, this huge, big shot guy coming with his 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and the 10 beautiful, ornate garments with all of the servants carrying everything and all of the animals and the entourage. And they show up at the hut of Elisha and Elisha turns to Gehazi, his servant, he says, tell him to go dip in the Jordan. He doesn't even come out and talk to him. just says, go tell him to go dip in the Jordan. He'll be fine. So he goes out and says, my master said to go tell you to go dip in the Jordan seven times so you'll be fine. Okay, bye-bye. And he leaves. And Naaman's like, do they know who I am? What is this? And he just angry, furious, and starts walking off. Now his servants are pretty bold. Because they're talking to this big shot guy. And they go, um, sir, um, if he'd asked you to do something really big and powerful, you did it, right? Yes. Well, he gave you something very simple to do, but why aren't you willing to try it? And Naaman sat back and thought about it and went, But okay, yeah, I see the sense in that. And he had to humble himself. And what I see there for me, what I see there is you can't burst in to God and say, I'm worth your time, so do something for me. God's like, no, you, you got it backwards. You, 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 you want to try that again? Come to me with the right attitude. And I think that's exactly what was going on here. Elisha, under, I believe, the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, said, oh, we're going to bring healing to you, but not under your terms. I don't care about your riches. I don't care about your wealth. I don't care about your pomp. I don't care about all of the fabulous, glorious. That's nothing. I can do that instantaneously, but we're going to do it a little bit ceremoniously. Go dip in the water seven times and you'll be fine. So he does. Now, I've heard different stories from different teachers and different preachers. Did he dip in the first time and when he comes out, it's a little bit better and then he goes in, it's a little bit better, it's a little bit... Or did he go in six times and nothing happened until the seventh dip? We don't know, we're not given that. But what we do know is that by the time he did seven distinct... Bathings or or baptisms, if you will, into the water of the Jordan. When he came out, he was completely clean, cleansed of any leprosy and his skin was restored as if he was a newborn baby. There wasn't even any scarring. God did over and above anything that would have been expected because all they were asking for was a healing. God restored as if it was brand spanking new. And at that point, Naaman has this incredible heart change. Now I know that there is no other God but the God who is in Israel. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Someone who has served Baal and Ashtoreth his entire life Whose whole culture, who is part of the ceremonial pageantry, worship of the government, now makes a public statement that I know there is no other god but the God of Elisha, the God of Israel. And it's interesting. I it, it, I don't think I've ever seen in any place else in the Bible or any other writings that I've, that he says, "Can I have some dirt?" Because I want to actually stand on God's soil as I worship. I want to I want to set up an altar while I'm standing on the soil of the nation of Israel. Because if you think about it, back then, the culture back then, they truly believed in geographical or regional gods. They didn't see universal God over all things. They saw God over this area. So in his poor spiritual formation, he sees, well, this is the God of this area. I want to take this area with me so I can always have this God with me. So he asks for two mule loads or two loads to be put on his mules to take back. But what we see there is his heart's intention is he wants to serve the true God with everything that he has. Even to the point of Having to, if, if it meant having to come back to Israel, he's just gonna make it convenient for him to be able to worship and pray regularly to this God. And he says, but then he says, but there is one thing, cause it's nothing I can control. It's because of who I am in my government and who I am in relation to my king. This is one thing I can't get out of, no matter what. I couldn't explain to them that I can't get out of this ceremonial thing, but no, my heart's not in it. Know that I'm not playing games here and please ask your God to pardon me. Now, we're not told and some scholars said, well, he never really said he would pardon him. He just said, go. Eh. I think God looked at the heart of Naaman and saw that there was indeed a heart change where Naaman was 100 percent committed to the God of Israel. And he said, but please forgive me in this one area where I have no control. It's going to look on the outside like I'm worshiping, but I'm not. It's going to look like from the outside because I have to bow down because I have to support the king, but I'm not. Believe my heart is not bowing down to that false god anymore. I'm serving the only true God, and I believe it. But please forgive this one, and I ask your God to forgive me in this one area. And it's not—it's addressed. I mean, it's not addressed, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's just laid to rest. Just go. It's just go. It's fine. And then. Naaman's leaving, and the thing that makes me so sick is this guy Gehazi. This whole story could have ended right there, and it would have been great. It would have been, yay, God! Good job, God! Hallelujah! You did a great thing. You you changed the heart of a man. You brought healing. You brought fame to your name. Yay, God! But this person who is part of the workings of God on a daily basis, seeing powerful things happening all the time, side by side, literally serving the man through whom God is doing miraculous things. And he's got this heart issue. Now remember what I said, 750 pounds of silver. And he asks, for three hundred was it three hundred pounds? No, he said hundred and fifty pounds because he asked for two talents. There were ten talents, seven hundred and fifty divided by 10, 75 pounds each. He asked for two, so he gets hundred and fifty pounds of silver. Don't do that. You can do the math on your own. And then he asked for two two uh, garments. And the thing that's so crazy is they, they, they're so big and so bulky, so heavy, everything. It literally takes servants to carry all of this stuff. But he stops short. He says, oh hey, don't come any farther. Let's get this in the house real quick. I don't want, I don't want Elisha to know about this. I gotta hide this. I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, where was he gonna hide it? I mean, we're not told that they had any kind of a building or a dwelling. I can imagine that they had something to keep them out of the weather, but it certainly wasn't a palace. It didn't have a lot of closets. How in the world did he think he was gonna hide 150 pounds of silver in two glorious ornate outfits? Shove them under his cot? Stuff them in his duffel bag? But he wasn't thinking that far ahead. He had just gotten the temptation in his eyes for the things. And he had to have them. And then he goes and he lies about it. My master has sent me because there's a need among the prophets of God. And it's kind of like a situation, of let the punishment fit the crime. And God ordains that. Gehazi now will carry this leprosy. But in his culture, he's now ostracized forever. He's an outsider in his culture. He can no longer be part of the culture. And the curse extends to his children. And I, I don't like that. I wish that that part wasn't in the Bible, but it is. Now, what is all of this for us? How do we carry this home? What part of it do you identify with? What is the, what is the, the story? What is the moral Ah, the moral is to be a little kid wherever God puts you with childlike faith and speak out about God and what He can do and let God do cool and miraculous and wonderful things just like that little girl did as she was sharing with her, master and, her mistress and her master. I know a God that can take care of your needs. Don't be like King Jehoram who didn't have a thing to do with God and just lived his own life. Definitely don't be Gehazi. And quite honestly, as you look at Elisha, he's a little arrogant. (laughs) I think so. If you look at all of his stories, because if you remember back when he got the mantle from from Elijah, when Elijah was taken up in the chariot and the mantle fell down, he rolls it up and he comes up to the Jordan and he says, Where's the God of Elijah now? Boom! With me. And he walks up. True? Not true? It's, it's kinda, he's kinda got a, a little bit of an arrogant attitude. And I, the thing, it shows a little bit here with Naaman. Who do you think you are? You think you're something special, mister? I'm all that, a bag of chips. I got all this stuff and I'm gonna make you come out to me. No, I'm gonna sit in my hut. I'm gonna send out my lowly servant, Gehazi, give you a little instruction. We need, don't even need to make eye contact. See, cause I know who I am. I'm a prophet of the living God. And so I don't like that either, quite honestly. But I love, I love, I love Naaman. Someone who was all that in a bag of chips. Someone who had position of authority. Someone who had the power. But something overwhelmed him beyond anything he could control that was going to probably kill him. And he had to humble and submit himself to the Almighty God. And he had to follow the directions of the Almighty God. And he had to do what he was told instead of doing what he thought was better. And the end result was he received an incredible reward. His life was restored to him. And he didn't take it for granted. He put his hope and his trust and his faith in the only true and living God. And he said, from this day forward, I will serve him with my whole being. I will honor Him. There's going to be a time when I'm forced because of my circumstances that I'm going to look on the outside like I'm not honoring Him but no, in my heart I still am honoring Him. Because as I'm standing before that false God, my heart's going to be as if I'm standing on the soil of Israel in front of the altar at my home worshiping the only true God because this is who I am now. I'm forsaking everything else. Only Him. So if that to me, that's the story. Is God and God and God has to be the very focus in the center. And we have to be willing to do whatever he asks, whether it makes sense or not, whether it's what we would want or not. And once we receive the blessing, don't go back to your old but walk in the new. That to me is the story of Naaman and the little girl and Elisha and Gehazi and Jehoram and Ahab. Let's pray.